Let's hear God's word from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, beginning with verse 27. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said, Likewise. Amen. We'll end our reading there in Mark 14, verse 31. Let's once again ask for God's help with prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us as we come to this passage. Lord, we pray that we would see ourselves in the disciples, in Peter, that we would understand our weakness, that we would grow in knowledge of ourselves so that we might have no earthly confidence, that we might put no confidence in the flesh, as Paul would say, but that instead we would put all confidence in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, show us who we are. So often we don't know how we come across to other people. We are unaware of the failings, the shortcomings that are so glaringly obvious to others. We pray, Lord, that in the mirror of your word, we might see what needs to be amended. But Lord, we pray for more than that. We pray that we would also see our Lord Jesus Christ, in a sense, victorious before the conflict has happened, aware of what will happen, aware of how things will go, and yet resolute in his pursuit of your plan to deliver and save your people through his death. Lord, teach us then to rest in him, to have him be all our confidence and all our strength. Help us to know that we are secure in his loving care. In his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, I don't usually like to give away the whole sermon in the prayer. If you were paying attention during the prayer, you already know what I'm going to say with the sermon this morning, there's a tremendous contrast between the Lord Jesus and his disciples, and especially as those disciples are represented by Peter. We can look at this under three main divisions. The Lord Jesus is predicting to the disciples that they are all going to be made to stumble. They are going to be scandalized because of him that evening. And that is in fulfillment of Scripture. In Zechariah 13 and verse 7, the Lord had said, Smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, when the Lord Jesus quotes that, he adapts it ever so slightly for his purpose here. Instead of saying an imperative, a command, smite the shepherd, in Zechariah, that command is addressed to the sword. Here, He says, I will smite. He's just drawing out and making perfectly clear that ultimately it's not Judas. It's not the Jewish leaders. It's not the Romans. It's not Pontius Pilate and his soldiers. Ultimately, it is God himself who smites the shepherd. And when the shepherd is smitten, the sheep are scattered. They're upset by this, understandably so. They don't stick together. They scatter, they run in different directions. 
Well, the Lord Jesus predicts that. He also predicts his resurrection. After I have been raised, I will go before you into Galilee, he says. But the disciples don't seem to hear that part. They just focus on the scattering part, the sheep being scandalized. And Peter says, everybody else might do that. It's quite likely that everybody else will do that, but I never will. So the Lord Jesus doubles down on the prediction to Peter. He gives it with more detail, with more particularity. And in fact, he reveals that Peter will fall the lowest of all the disciples, the most overconfident, the most self-confident one will be the one to deny Christ, to deny Christ even with cursing and swearing before the cock has crowed two times. Before the rooster is done with his morning routine, Peter will have denied his Lord three times over. But Peter doesn't believe that prediction either. He denies it more vehemently, and all the disciples join in. So there's a number of contrasts there between the Lord Jesus and his disciples, as primarily represented by Peter here. One of the contrasts is the Lord Jesus knows what will happen, and the disciples are completely wrong about what will happen. Another contrast is the Lord Jesus is looking beyond the crucifixion, and the disciples are not. They can't even accept the fact of the crucifixion at this stage. But another contrast is the Lord Jesus is believing the words of Scripture. He's believing the truth. And the disciples are still not believing the truth. They're doubting Zechariah 13, at least in its application to them, and they're contradicting the Lord Jesus. You think about the insanity of that for a moment. Who can contradict the Lord and even expect to be right, even hope to be right? And yet he's saying, this is what's going to happen. They're saying, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Even if that's true of everybody else, that's not true of me. I'll go with you into death. I'll never deny you. They're disbelieving the words of the Lord Jesus. At the very moment, they're making these professions of attachment to him. That is quite a contrast between them. Well, let's go back through and work through in a little bit of order here as we consider these things. First of all, you have this important reality that in these events, Scripture is being fulfilled. In part, we can say that the Lord Jesus knows what will happen because he has read the Scripture. He understands that Scripture is fulfilled in him and in the events surrounding him. And so he can look at the book of Zechariah and he can say, oh, well, when the shepherd is smitten, the sheep will be scattered. Now, that's probably true as a general principle, right? When you take away the head, when you take away the leadership, the body flails around, the body is scattered and dispersed. If you eliminate the general of an army, unless there's a clear chain of command, unless the order of succession is clear, the army can fall into disarray. But this is not just a general principle. As it's coming to us in the book of Zechariah, this is a very specific occasion. It's an occasion when the Lord himself awakens a sword against a shepherd and commands that sword to smite one who is his fellow. In other words, this is a messianic prediction. It's telling us that the stroke of God's justice, his vengeance against sin, is going to fall 
not on the sinners who deserve it, but is going to fall against the man who is God's companion, the man of his right hand. It's going to fall, in other words, on God the Son, on the shepherd of the sheep. Now, when that happens, of course the sheep are not going to be calm and relaxed. Of course the sheep are not going to just roll with it. They're going to be scandalized. They're going to be made to stumble. Luke expresses this idea by saying that Satan had desired to have Peter so that he could be sifted like wheat. And the Lord Jesus says to Peter in the Gospel of Luke, I have prayed for you so that your faith should not fail. Well, that helps us to understand what is the idea of stumbling here. It's the idea of your faith being shaken. It's the idea of almost losing your faith. You're brought to the point where it's an open question whether you will continue to believe or not, at least from the standpoint of your experience. I'm not saying that from the standpoint of God's decree, there's any doubt. But from the standpoint of what you're feeling, what you're going through, your faith is deeply rattled and you're not sure whether you're going to be a believer tomorrow or not. That's what is being addressed here with stumbling is something that deeply rattles their trust in, their commitment to Christ. Now that was predicted. That was part of what God did. That was part of what God allowed to happen. And the same thing can happen, sometimes does happen, in our lives. We go through seasons of doubt. There are things that come up that cause our faith to be shaken. It could be a deep distress, a deep sorrow. It could be a medical condition where the severity of suffering is such that it deranges our normal functioning. We're not thinking straight and our faith is shaken. There's many different ways that people are brought to this point. It could be you're reading scripture and you come across what seems like an insoluble difficulty. It does happen. And it does happen to God's people. And when it happens to God's people, their commitment to Christ may seem to come into question. They may not know, and other human beings looking at them don't know whether they're going to come back from this or not. But God knows. The Lord Jesus knows. And what we need to see here is that even though these disciples were going to be scandalized, they were going to stumble at Christ, all of them that night, that didn't change Christ's commitment to them. When believers are in doubt and in distress, Christ has not lost sight of them. Christ has not given up on them. He went to the cross for believers who were in doubt and distress, for believers who were scandalized and offended. He accepted that stroke against him for the sake of these weak, unsteady, unreliable people like you and me. His commitment did not waver, even though theirs did. One of the reasons for that is the contrast I drew earlier. The Lord Jesus really believed the scriptures to a much greater degree than the disciples did. Of course, if you had asked them, they would have said, oh, we believe, we believe the Bible is the word of God. But in application to themselves, well, that's a little bit harder. We can say in theory the Bible is God's word. But how often 
do we fail when it comes to trusting that this is God's word for us? In a general way, for other people who are believers, all things work together for good. But in my specific circumstances, I don't need this trial that's happening to me. I don't need to be put through this. Christ learned obedience by the things that he suffered, but I'm going to learn obedience some other way. Sometimes that's our attitude, isn't it? We believe the scriptures in general, but not so much with specific reference to ourselves. Well, Christ believed the scriptures with specific reference to himself. And that gave him, that contributed to him being more stable than the disciples, even though he was the one who was going to endure the greater sufferings. A faith informed by scripture that applies scripture personally is stronger, is steadier than a faith that is only general. We need to particularize. We need to marinate in the promises. We need to apply them to ourselves in specific detail or we lose out on some of the benefit of them. Now, in what happened this fateful evening, it was not just scripture that was being fulfilled, God's plan being carried out. But you also notice that the Lord Jesus is already focused on the resurrection. He's warning his disciples. He's protecting them already from the worst fallout of what is going to happen. And so he directs their minds to the future. He says, after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. They're arriving at the Mount of Olives. They're in Jerusalem. They're in Judea. But they're going to go back to Galilee, where they've had such wonderful experience of Christ, where they've enjoyed such communion with him, where they've seen him do so many mighty works. And they're going to meet with him in Galilee after the resurrection. Why does he do that? Well, I think there's at least two reasons that we can bring up. One is personal, and one is for the sake of the disciples. In Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that the Lord Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame. How did he make it through all of this? He looked forward to resurrection. He looked forward to glory on the other side. Well, we do that in a mild way, right? When a kid has to receive an injection, what do you say? Well, on the other side of this injection, there's a lollipop, right? First, there's the suffering, and then there's the glory, That may seem like a trivial illustration, but this is how we are as human beings. How do you make it through the tough spots? How do you go through something that is agonizing, that is overwhelming? You have to have hope for the other side. You have to have hope that there's something different coming. We shouldn't despise that. We shouldn't try to pretend that that's not how we work. We shouldn't try to erase that part of our humanity. That's how the Lord Jesus functioned. How did he go to the cross? For the joy that was set before him. That's how. How are you going to go through trials? How are you going to face sickness? How are you going to face distress? How are you going to face sorrow and loss? You have to face it in hope. If you're going to face it well, you're not going to get through those things as a Christian unless you get through them in hope. What is our, well, ultimately, our hope is the hope of the resurrection, right? 
Jesus will come back. Jesus will raise us from the dead. Jesus will put everything to rights. How do we make it through a world under a curse? How do we make it through a world burdened with sin and suffering? How do we make it through a world where ultimately things are going to get worse for you? You are going to lose your strength. You are going to lose your health. How do you make it through any of that in hope? And why are we so often rattled? scandalized, made to stumble by the trials that come upon us. I think one big reason is that we don't really cultivate hope. That's not what we're thinking about. When maybe we have hope in an earthly sense, right? We think, well, in a couple of weeks, things will slow down. You know, I've been saying that to myself for a few years now. <laughs> I'm not sure it's happened yet. And you probably have the same experience. In a couple of weeks... Things will be a little slower. Things will be a little less pressured. I'm not sure that ever happens. You talk to people who have retired, and they say, I'm busier than ever. So where do we have to set our hope? Are we just kicking the can down the road? Or are we setting our hope on a kingdom that can't be shaken, on something that cannot fail, on resurrection? Whether things get harder or easier here in this life, you know one way or another they are going to get harder in some dimensions. But we can cultivate a hope that things will really, truly, ultimately, finally be better. We can face these ups and downs as the Lord Jesus did. But so often we're like these disciples. You hear the promises of glory. After I'm raised, I'll go before you into Galilee. We'll meet again there. Did Peter take that on board at all? Did any of the disciples? It seems like that didn't even register with them. And boy, aren't we like that as well. You have the promise. We know that all will be well. And yet, here we are stewing and anxious and distressed and upset. What happened to the promise? Well, it's there. It's been made. But we just haven't taken it on board. We haven't considered it. On the one hand, then, this is a plea for realism. You are a human being. You cannot live without hope. You've got to cultivate hope. You've got to remind yourself of the glory. You've got to get through what is rough and challenging here in the vision of something much better in the future. But that hope can't be something minor. That hope can't be a little treat. That hope has to be something strong and solid, something that cannot be disappointed. That hope has to be centered in Christ. The blessed hope that Paul speaks of is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where our hope needs to be, not in this world, but in the world to come, not in anything minor, but in the return of Christ, our resurrection with him, our everlasting presence, there's our hope. It's not that we can't have smaller hopes along the way, but you can't lean too much on them. However, we need to move on to the overconfidence of the disciples, which is where the emphasis of this passage falls. Peter says, even if, and the way he says it seems to imply, yeah, that's quite likely. These other guys might totally stumble. 
not me. I'm different. Oh, you are different, Peter. You're different because you're going to fall further than any of the other disciples, except obviously Judas Iscariot. Notice the level of detail. The Lord Jesus already knows there's going to be a rooster who crows two times. And in that amount of time, Peter is going to deny him three times. The Lord Jesus already knew in that much detail what a disappointment Peter would be. He already knew that Peter would not believe those words that Christ spoke. Now, we see an image of ourselves there also. The Lord Jesus tells us who we are. He says, out of the heart proceed murders, adulteries, evil thoughts. We think, well, maybe that's true for other people. I'm better than that. No, you're not. No, you're not. The Lord Jesus knows who you are. And the Lord Jesus says that we're pretty rotten. It's sort of offhanded one way. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, like he's just taking it for granted. Of course you're evil. Well, we don't like to think of ourselves as evil, do we? That seems like such a harsh word. We reserve that for the really terrible people, those other people. He says, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Sometimes that's even what we appeal to, right? We're like, hey, we're, we're decent parents. We're not evil. The Lord Jesus says about decent parents that they were evil. Or we have other things that we find our self-righteousness in. We try to shelter ourselves from this expose of our hearts by saying how hard we work or how consistently we try or whatever it is. But we're like Peter. Others might deny you. I won't. I'll go with you into death. No, you won't. Peter didn't. Peter denied Christ. That's the reality. That's who we are. And we need to understand that. We need not to pretend we are evil. We are weak. We are wicked. That's why we need a Savior. Now, Peter was a genuine disciple. He did believe in Jesus. But at this point, he was not believing the words of Jesus. That raises a question. Is there anywhere where we might be similar to Peter? We do believe in general. Yes, we're attached to Christ. We follow him. But is there someone or another of his words? Is there some part or another of scripture that we're not really believing? We're not applying to ourselves? Our faith needs to be individualized. We need to bring the word all the way to home, to our hearts, to our situations, to our circumstances. Now, on the one hand, there's some encouragement here. Peter is a true disciple, and yet he's a mess. He's a disaster. Well, we're messes. We're disasters. It doesn't mean we're not true disciples. There's that encouragement. The disciples of Christ are often disasters. Here we are. We recognize ourselves in Peter. Our faith is not what it should be. Jesus speaks clearly, and we're like, oh, no, that's not right. That seems completely incompatible with believing Jesus, doesn't it? that we would take any of his word and say, oh, no, no, that's not right. Well, there's always a mixture of faith and unbelief. We need to say, Lord, I believe. Help, 
my unbelief, because we are mixed bags in this regard. But we do need to be growing in this. We do need to be identifying those areas, and we need to apply the word of Christ specifically to them in a focused way. We also need to be realistic. We need to be realistic about our need for hope, as I said earlier, but we also need to be realistic about ourselves. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you, Peter says. Unless the Lord Jesus keeps us, yes, we will. You will give way to pressure. You will fall into temptation. You will be deceived by the wiles of the devil unless the Lord Jesus preserves you. There is never a place where you can say, well, I'm immune to that. I'm invulnerable. That won't happen to me. This is why Paul says, let the one who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. You think you're strong. You think you've got it nailed down. You think you're going to be okay. You're in danger. You're in more danger then because overconfidence is not a Christian virtue. Self-confidence is not a Christian virtue. Confidence in Christ is, but confidence in Christ and self-confidence are not the same thing at all. What would happen to me without the Lord Jesus preserving me. I don't know what exactly that would look like, but it would not be pretty. It would not be good. I would fall away. I would go astray. I can't tell you the specifics, but I can tell you that I would not persevere. I would not remain with the Lord unless he held me, unless he kept me. But what is Jesus doing when he tells Peter these things. He's letting Peter know your failures are not deal breakers. I'm not going to turn my back on you. You're going to deny me three times. I'm still going to go before you into Galilee. I'm still going to meet with you there. Peter was restored. Peter was brought back. All the disciples were restored. You see, that's the commitment. Of our Lord. That's where we find security and confidence. His love, not mine, the resting place, as we sing in a hymn. His blood, not mine, the tie. He holds on to us. The Lord Jesus knew, in fulfillment of Scripture, that his disciples would be stumbled, they would be scandalized because of him that evening. But he didn't turn his back on them. He didn't say, oh, your loyalty is imperfect. Well, guess what? I'm not going to die for you after all. He still promised to go before them into Galilee. That same grace, that same heart, that same character comes to us. Will you follow the Lord as you should? No. No, you won't. Can you grow? Can you do better than you're doing today? Sure. By God's grace, he does help us. But not in your own strength, not leaning on yourself, not trusting your own wisdom, learning that you have nothing, that in your flesh there dwells no good thing so that you don't have any self-confidence, so that all your confidence is in Christ. That's real growth. That's making progress in the Christian life. Not saying with Peter, I'll die with you. Saying, unless you keep me, I'll deny you under the tiniest provocation. That's 
more genuine growth. We want to have the commitment where we would be willing to die with Christ. But that commitment is never going to arise from our own energy. It is always going to be the grace, the mercy, the power of Christ working to keep and to preserve us. This is a Savior worth following into suffering and death. But this is a Savior who will keep you if that's the reality, if that's your circumstance. He, didn't, he kept Peter here, not from such a great trial, but he did keep Peter here. Down the road, he kept Peter when it was Peter's turn to go into death and not deny his Lord. Jesus remained committed to Peter, and Peter's commitment to Christ grew until it did live up to what Peter professed here. That's what we can hope for as well. Our commitment to Christ is imperfect. But don't give up. Don't turn away. Don't fall back. Lean on Christ. And that commitment will grow stronger by his grace. Amen.